And Father, we are so thankful that we can sing that, to know you are good, and to rest in that. Help us as we come to your word now to hear from you, to be encouraged, to be blessed, to be shaped, and so that we might become the children that you desire us to be. Thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Our service has taken a little different shape than normal. If you're a regular attender, you know that uh, doing this many special moments in a service isn't typical. I I I was going to say I take the blame. I take the responsibility. I kind of got dates going out there and it ended up everybody wanted to do this on the same day. And we talked about it as staff and said, I think we could do it all. Said, you're going to have to preach shorter though. (laughs) So that was the assignment. We're doing fine though. And as we uh, gather together, though, because I think as we were singing that song, I, God is so good. I, in one way, I wanted to get up and just say, enough said. <laughs> right? We've had families come before us today and say they want their kids to know Jesus. Parents standing before us and saying, God, help us to help our kids to know Jesus. We've had a baptism, which is at the heart of the gospel presentation, celebrating our identity with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. This is all gospel. This is who we are as a people, and it is fantastic to celebrate that. And as we turn to the pages of scripture, it is that gospel that we also want to celebrate today. As we turn again into 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to go to chapter 4 if you want to find your way there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to begin at verse 13, and we did uh, modify our schedule a little bit. You guys don't really know what our schedule is, so you don't know that. Typically, I would take 13 right through chapter 5, verse 11. We're going to do it in two pieces, so we're going to start this week and finish up next week. But as we do that, it is really this understanding of how powerfully the gospel took hold of these people in Thessalonica and what they understood it to be. But it also kind of gives us a glimpse into Paul's presentation of the gospel. That when Paul went into Thessalonica, what did he teach those people there that rooted them so deeply? And also, what was their response to that that we see coming out in this section of his letter that needed a little correcting? It needs a little affirming. It needs a little kind of re-instruction. And so just to review, I want to go back into 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and just these couple of verses to remind you about how Paul identified these people when he began to write the letter to them. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, we read this, that we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. That, the gospel marked these people in a very powerful and unique way. It says the, the word came to them, and there was a power that was there. There was a demonstration of, of God's power in their lives. The Holy Spirit was present in this church. They understood his gifting. They understood the assurance of the Holy Spirit in their life. And the final little phrase is, with deep conviction. With deep conviction, they embraced the gospel that Paul gave them. And you remember we talked about he was only there a very short time. That as far as planning a church goes, it wasn't ideal. It was, it was, a, mag, well, it was a minimum of about three weeks because he preached for three weeks in the synagogue. It was probably a maximum of, of just a few months. 
And so as he, as he planted this church in such a short period of time, they really embraced the gospel and grew, and there was this wonderful report of who they had become. They were identified as a people who were known for their work produced by faith, a labor prompted by love, and their endurance inspired by the hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. That hope that they had is this people of deep conviction, this deep conviction that in Jesus there was a hope that carried them in life and helped them to endure the persecution they faced, to endure the, the cultural influences that would come against them, and they kept their eyes focused forward on the hope of Jesus Christ. What that tells me is that had to be a key part of Paul sharing the gospel with them. That Paul, when he shared the gospel, he would present the story of Jesus, God who became a man and walked this earth, who died for the sins of the world, who rose again from the dead and ascended to heaven, and will one day come for his own, who will return to this earth. And one day, and this Thessalonica church, they looked forward to that day, to Christ's coming. It was held with deep conviction by that church. It was held with just a great sense of, of glory. But there was some confusion that had crept into their thinking and understanding of what that coming was going to be about. And I think Paul, as he was writing this letter to them, was kind of priming them again for this refresher in our verses today, chapter 4 through uh, chapter 5. And as he's doing that, in every chapter of this letter, the second coming of Christ is mentioned. Do a quick little review for you. In chapter 1, at the end of uh, chapter 1, we read there that these people were, uh, the testimony about them was that they were told how you turn from God to idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. To wait for him whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Part of their turning from sin and idolatry was turning to this mode of waiting, of an anticipation, Jesus is coming for us. In chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, Paul says, what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you, he says of these people? Paul says his crown, that sense of the, the glory that he's going to have is found in these people who so are waiting for Jesus to come again. And Paul was glorying and thinking of that coming of Jesus and what a great and glorious day it would be. End of chapter 3, he says this simple prayer. May God strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones, with all those that, that are there in the presence of God now, that they are all going to come with Jesus. And may you be ready. May you be prepared. May your hearts and your lives be one of holiness. And then in one of the largest sections of this whole book, in chapter 4, 13 through 5, 11, he spells that out even more, more details about his coming. And then at the end of chapter 5, he prays again, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the one who calls you is faithful, he will do it. This was a church that was birthed in anticipation that Jesus is coming for them that Jesus is coming back, 
that Jesus, this Savior who died and rose again and ascended to heaven, that wasn't the end of the story. There's another part that he's going to come back. And they were so anticipating Christ's return and understanding the sharing in that victory when he returns. For when Christ returns, it's a victorious, it's a glorious return. That they began to sorrow. They began to grieve because some of the church family had died. Some of the church family had passed away before it took place. And they began to think, oh God, how, what a sad thing that they're going to miss it. They're going to miss that, that return of Jesus and being with him and understanding all that that meant for them. And Paul in chapter 4 says, I need to help you understand this better. You know, Timothy came back with a report about how they're doing. And Timothy kind of said, Paul, but there's, they're just off in this understanding of death and of resurrection and of the coming of Jesus. And so in chapter 4, Paul sets some things straight for them. And he does it to encourage them. At the end of chapter 4 and the end of section 5, he says, encourage each other with these words. So we're going to kind of just walk through this passage a bit this morning. And for our edification, for our encouragement, be reminded, be taught, be affirmed in what death and resurrection is in Jesus Christ. So in chapter 4, beginning of verse 13, if you have your scripture open or it'll be up on the screen, we read these words. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with him. So God will bring with, will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage each other as you understand what it is that we are saying in this passage as Paul outlines here again what it is to be dead in Christ or as he's talking, asleep in Christ, which we'll think about. They were grieving deaths of members. But in a sense, they were grieving in hopelessness. Like the rest of mankind does about death. And Paul says, there is no need. They were grieving as though death had won. And Paul says, death does not win when you are in Christ. They were grieving as though death had somehow beaten them down. And Paul's saying, death when you are in Christ does not beat you down. So he's encouraging them, and he needs to shift their understanding. They were uninformed. In that short period of time that Paul had with them, he couldn't get all the details, and they had misunderstood some things. Some of the older translations say, I wouldn't want you to be ignorant. <laughs> right, that word ignorant, they just didn't know. 
right? And so Paul's writing to correct this. And I think at the heart of it, he's really redefining or helping them to refine their understanding of death and resurrection for those who are in Christ. So just think about this with me for the next little bit. The nature of death for those in Christ, verses 13 and 14, as he starts this passage off where he says, I don't want you to be informed but those who sleep in death. And he says that again in the end of verse 14, for those who have fallen asleep in him. The heart of this understanding of death, the nature of death for those in Christ is that death is a continuation, not a cessation. Death continues our life. It doesn't bring it to a close. Although from a human standpoint, we see that happen. From a human standpoint, death is a devastating moment for us because we see a body that had life in it moments before and then it is taken away. I don't know if you've ever been in the presence of someone who is dying. It can be a very, well, there's a whole lot of descriptions of what goes on. It can be very disturbing for some people. But if you've been there, and you recognize that as you're looking in someone's eyes, that there is a moment when there is life there, and the next, it isn't. They are no longer there. We recognize that, that life has been removed from that body, that there is a separation that has taken place. What Paul is saying here, and he intentionally uses this, about those who sleep in death. He's saying death is not final. Death is not the cessation of life. Someone has said it's, death is not so much about a place, it's about a person. Meaning death isn't about sort of what happens where you go. Death is who are you with after death. Paul explains in Philippians 1, in probably one of his most direct passages about death, Philippians 1 verse 20 says this, so now the whole passage says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And then this key phrase, he says, for to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. How? How, Paul? What's the gain in death? He goes on and says, For if I go on living in the body, it means fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Paul's teaching of death is that when death comes for those who are in Christ, you pass from this world into the presence of Jesus. That's a great hope that he's laying for us here. He says, there is those who are asleep, that it's just the sleep of death. In verse 16, he just says that the dead in Christ will rise first. Do you realize that he is saying, here's your place. When death comes for Christ, for those who are in Christ, you are still in Christ. You are still with him. You are not in this physical dominion any longer, but you have passed into his presence. There is life beyond the grave. And why would we believe that? Look what he says in verse 14. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. We believe that Jesus has conquered death. It no longer has dominion. 
If you've grown up in the church, that's easier to accept than it is in the general world. In the church, we talk about this a lot. We talk about there is a life to come, and there's, there's that life that can be found in Jesus Christ. For those outside of Christ, so it's a difficult concept, because if life is empty, then an eternity of that seems hopeless. Why would we just continue in, in a life that's already empty and void? What's the hope in that? But in Christ, we have the eternal life that he grants us. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, we read this, that God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. A very important understanding. When God created us, he put a sense of eternity into our hearts. We know because of that image-bearing relationship that we have with God that eternity is a reality. Though we cannot fathom it, though we can't fathom the beginning to the very end of eternity, it's broader than our infinite or our, our finite minds can ever comprehend. He has put it there so we understand that there is eternity that goes on. Romans 1 says the same thing. When Paul describes that we are without excuse before him in our sin. Why? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Eternal power, divine nature, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. We know from what God has created around us and from how we have been created that there is an eternal power in existence, and there is a divine nature. Now, Romans goes on to say that we squelch that, that mankind pushes it down, that they regard it, that in their wickedness they put it aside, and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, but it's there within us when we begin. That sense of eternity, that sense that there is more than just this life. It's part of our sense of being image bearers. C.S. Lewis, as he was writing about his wife's death and reflecting on that in a couple of different books, as he reflected on it, he made this comment. He said, if life ends at death, it means life doesn't amount to much. If life just ends at death, it means life isn't worth much. Because is this all we have then really life has no capacity for having greater meaning than that. Another writer said this, Jeffrey White, he says, life is either totally meaningless or total, totally meaningful depending on what death is. Totally meaningless or totally meaningful by what you describe as death and understanding it to be. In Christ... In Christ, when death comes physically upon us and we are separated in that sense from this physical life for a time, we are embraced and brought into the presence of Christ. That life goes on and it is in his grace and in his glory. It gives it an eternal meaningfulness. That life means something. How we live here makes a difference to our eternity. That the gospel being embraced by us in this life ushers us into an eternal life in the presence of God. It's what Jesus says in John 4, John 5, 24. 
He says, very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but it's crossed over from death to life. Eternal life doesn't begin when I die. Eternal life begins when I am united to the Savior by the Holy Spirit within me. By grace, I am saved through faith. And I am brought into an eternal relationship with him. And that is when eternal life begins. John 17 says that this is eternal life to know God and the one whom he has sent. Eternal life is about that eternal relationship that we have with Jesus. We have with the Father. We have in the Spirit. And Paul is saying that death for those who are in Christ is just a sleep of death. For there are greater things ahead for us. So that's one of the main points. That death is not a cessation. That it is a continuance. But then just a couple of other things that come out of this. In in some subtle ways. The second is, but death should be grieved. Paul doesn't say to the church, don't grieve. He says, don't grieve like the rest of mankind. Don't grieve like those who have no hope. But when you grieve, grieve as those who have hope. Death separates us. There's a deep sense of loss. There's a deep sense of disconnection, obviously. When loved ones, those that we have been with, husbands and wives and families and children and parents, and even within the church family, In Thessalonica, they were grieving over those dear brothers and sisters that had died. See, that's what the love of fellowship and the love of God does for us. It draws us into those kind of relationships. And there is a grieving about death. And it should be grieved because it is an enemy. It is a destroyer. It separates. And so we are called to grieve, but not in despair not in hopelessness, but that grief of loss, that grief that says that someone will be deeply missed, that there is an emptiness in that spot where they used to reside. So it's okay to grieve, but not in hopelessness, not in the sense that there will never be a reunion, not in the sense that there isn't other things to still come, for that one who has died and for those who are left behind. See, in Christ, death is not hopelessness. Death is that which brings us into a different union with Christ. So death is not hopeless because since Jesus died and rose again, God will bring with Jesus those who sleep in him. Do you catch those, that phrasing through this whole passage? That those who are with Jesus are going to be brought with him when he comes. Death does not lead us to hopelessness. It takes us to that place where we find ourselves in him because his righteousness is our hope. His forgiveness, which in our lives is that constant lifeblood for us that keeps us in a, in a purity before the Father. That when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Well, that atonement that we have won is what carries us into the next life after the grave and we find ourselves in his presence. Why? 
because Jesus died and rose again. That the gospel has covered all of our sin and so we find ourselves in his presence. It's what we've been set free for. Paul describes that state in Ephesians 2, the state of those who are without Christ. In that chapter, he kind of introduces the idea that, in, that without Christ, we are so lost. His description is this. At that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. It's a devastating description of someone without Christ, without hope, without God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is our hope. This is the reality why death is not a conqueror, but the death For the believer in Christ is a movement into a new sphere, into a new place, into the different kind of relationship with Jesus. And somehow they have lost sight of what death was for those who are in Christ. And they also needed to understand what resurrection was about. Because this passage is about those who are going to be resurrected, to be brought back again. Verse 15, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. See, this is where they were really getting hung up. They were left. They were still waiting for Jesus. And they were thinking the others that have died are going to miss. And Paul says, well, we will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. How? How? Paul's saying, because there is a resurrection. There was a resurrection of those who have fallen asleep. What a glorious day this is going to be. That those of us who are on the earth when Jesus comes again will not precede those who have passed away in him. Verse 17, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. That little phrase, caught up together with them, is is where the word rapture comes from. You know, a rapture, and if we started down the eschatological framework, we're going to do a little bit more of that next week. You know, thinking about the timelines and some of the ways that God is preparing us for Christ's coming. That there is this moment of rapture, a moment of being caught up together to meet the Lord in the air with those who Jesus brings with him. This is a moment of great resurrection. Their concern that those who have died are going to miss the coming of Jesus is being put to rest. Paul says, don't worry about them. They're coming to get you. (laughs) They're coming to meet you. It's all going to turn out all right. I've been watching a number of tributes for Tim Keller over the past week. Tim passed away just over a week ago and tributes and just memories of his life and just some marvelous testimonies. And, and one of the ones that just came up through an Instagram thing, I was amazed to see it kind of pop up in his face. And they were asking him the question sometime in the last year, I believe, you know, as he's had cancer and, and knew his life was short. And there was an interview taking place and they they asked him, what would you say to young people who are fearful of the future? And it was a longer, kind of a longer uh, than I'm going to give you. 
But the heart of it was this. He said, if Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead, I mean, he really got up, walked out, and talked to people, hundreds of people, and was seen by them. If he was raised from the dead, then everything's going to be all right. I saw what a stunning testimony for a man who is facing death more imminently than most of us are aware of. He said, everything's going to be all right because in his resurrection is the resurrection of his people and in a sense, in the ultimate resurrection of the natural world as well because there is coming a new heavens and a new earth. Everything's going to be all right. I just thought the confidence in his voice and just his very humble nature And it really simply comes down to that. It's what it says in verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's our hope. That's where we find ourselves confident that it will all turn out all right. And those who are alive will not precede those. There is this great uh, uniting that's going to take place again, this great resurrection. One of the commentaries I was reading on this says this. Think of all that is included in these verses. The earth and the the sea are going to yield up the dust of all the dead in Christ. And the transforming miracle by which this dust is formed into glorified bodies. Free forever from sickness, pain, and death. And all of this taking place in the twinkling of an eye as 1 Corinthians 15 says. And then they made this comment. Men of the world have difficulty believing the account of the creation of man in Genesis 1 and 2. If they have difficulty with creation, what are they going to do with the rapture? When God will recreate millions of people from the dust that has been buried, scattered, strewn, or swept up on the beaches of the world. What an incredible moment that we will be caught up together to meet those who are with Christ. And he he finishes this short little passage on just the glory of Jesus' return, and I'm going to quickly kind of do the same thing. That in this glory of his return, there is this sense that there are sounds to hear and sights to see and miracles to feel and meetings to enjoy and comfort to be experienced. For in verse 16 and 17, it says, The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. The Lord himself will come down. Isn't that glorious? That that sense of his physical presence will once more be coming to the earth. That the pages that we treasure of the gospels when Jesus walked this earth, it's going to come again. That the Lord himself will come down with a loud command, with a shout, it says. Many people wonder what that shout is. We're not told. There's just this shout that he's going to give. Is it the shout that he gave at Lazarus' grave? Remember that? He was at Lazarus' grave, and he says, Lazarus, come out! 
And what happened? Lazarus got up. <laughs> he got up who had been dead four days and he got up and he came out of the grave. Is this the moment when Jesus is calling all of those who are dead in Christ to come to me? I heard a sermon years ago. I think it was by Charles Price, but I'm not exactly sure, but I just remember what he said this command is going to be. And whenever I've read this passage, I always hear that voice, although I can't get the face. He said, what the command is going to be is simply one word. Enough! (laughs) Enough! Enough sin! Enough tribulation! Enough rebellion! He's coming back that his kingdom and his dominion will reign. It's with a loud command. It's with the voice of the archangel. Michael called out of, is he in retirement? It's been thousands of years. (laughs) The voice of the archangel, this loud command. It's that sense of the amassing of the angels. You know, it's the assembling of the mighty host. I think that's what the trumpet call might be. The trumpets were that sense of let's gather, gather the military together, the hosts of heaven to accompany Jesus as he appears and makes his way down to us. It's a triumphal gathering and we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. In Ephesians 2, do you remember who the prince of the kingdom of the air is? (laughs) It's Satan's dominion. And we are caught up to meet Jesus in the air. He's invading. He is coming into in open defiance of the devil in his own strongholds. And we are going to be caught up to be with him there. There, of course, are all kinds of questions of what that's going to look like and what's the timing and, you know, millennia. It's not what Paul says here. He just says, Jesus is coming. And it's going to be glorious And it's going to be mighty. And we need to be caught up in that and have an incredible hope. And it says that we will meet him in the air and we will usher in his glorious kingdom. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Hallelujah. Amen. God bless us. Worship team, you guys come on back up. You know, this is what Paul says. Encourage each other with these words. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, if we believe that Jesus in his death and his resurrection provided for me, provided for you the gift of eternal life, so that death is no longer victorious over us, but that in death we will be in his presence, And whether we need to wait till he comes or whether he ushers us home, that we are there with him for eternity. And this is our hope and who we are in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 9, we read this, that just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. It's the final completion when perfection, that sense of being complete in Christ will be ours and all will be revealed and known. Are you waiting? You're waiting for him? 
There's a lot to be done while we're waiting. We're going to be called to meet the Lord in the air. When we meet the Lord in the air, it's in that sense meeting him and welcoming him as he's coming. Let's make sure the house is clean when he comes, eh? Let's make sure our lives are prepared. That's the call of the second coming. That every day, and these Thessalonians lived every day that Jesus might come today. That's why they grieved when people died, because they thought they're going to miss it. We need to have that sense. Is it today, Jesus? What is it I need to do so that I know the salvation that you have for me is being brought to completion? Father, allow us to know your grace and your hope, the might of your power, to understand that Jesus died and rose again. He's ascended back to be at your right hand. And God, you have told us he is coming. He is returning once more for us. May this be our encouragement and our grace in all things. Amen.